And now I'm loved forevermore because of what you've done. Father, I pray that tonight, through the words of your prophet Micah, we would feel tangibly just how much you love us. Individually and as a church, whoever we are tonight, would we feel your love through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help me to speak faithfully, truly, passionately. And please give us all, Lord, listening ears. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever get the feeling that as a Christian, you're on the losing side? Every few years, the Church of England releases a whole bunch of statistics about the state of faith in the UK, and normally they're horrendously depressing. Apparently, across the nation of our whole, church attendance is dropping at the rate of 1% every year. So I'm 33 years old, so across my, 30, across my 33 years, church attendance has dropped 33% or something like that. Apparently, the rate of retirement amongst clergy far exceeds, far exceeds the, the rate of new ordinance going in. And many dioceses across our country are simply managing decline rather than planning for growth. And the media, who normally have nothing to do with um, Christianity normally, they, they, they love all these stats. They pour all over them. They compare it to the birth rate in the Muslim community. It seems to be on the up. They compare it to the national census, which shows that secular humanism is on the rise. And panelist after panelist after panelist comes onto the news telling us, gloating, that the church has lost, that we are the losers. When I was a kid at, uh, at Easter time, on Good Friday, my church, we used to do this march of witness around our town centre. Did you used to do that when you were a kid? Hardly any churches do it now. Hardly any churches, whereas a lot of towns have these gay pride marches. It's interesting that, it, that uh, the increased shame in our identity almost corresponds with the increased pride in other communities. We're always told, aren't we, on this issue of sexuality, we're on the wrong side of history, that we're the losers. Well, really, that's the sum uh, of things, isn't it? Our, our culture looks at the church, it looks at the media, it looks at what they're seeing at Hollywood, and their conclusion is followers of Jesus are losers. That if you call yourself a Christian, you've backed the wrong horse. And really, what you should do, you should just throw your ticket on the ground and leave the stadium because your horse is never going to win. The competition is too far ahead. You might as well head home before the race is over. You've backed a loser. I think for some of us here today, though, our concerns might be a little closer to home. Our question isn't so much whether or not the church has lost, but whether we're lost. Because we know our own hearts, don't we? And we know the strength of those things which oppose us. And maybe we're starting to believe that we're too broken, too sinful, and too far gone to be saved by God. Maybe that's where we're at tonight. Well, here we are at the very end of the book of Micah. And you might know that the city of Jerusalem are feeling very much like the losers. She's been found guilty in God's law courts of idolatry and rife corruption from the very top of society. She's been compared last week to a vineyard that she's been stripped of all her fruit. Spiritually, she's barren. 
So it's no surprise that in the book of Micah, we find the city besieged by the Assyrian army. And, and there's the prospect of exile to Babylon looming further in the distance. Much like here and now today, the church in Micah's day looks like the loser. They look dead. But what we're going to hear tonight, friends, is that our God has the power to raise the dead. Micah has four things to encourage us, four reasons to have hope in midst of present circumstances. And the first is this, you'll see on your handout. Our enemies will be defeated. Look down at verse 8. There, the city of Jerusalem here is speaking defiantly against her enemy. Open your Bible, please, and look at uh, verse 8. Verse 8, here is Jerusalem speaking. Page 935. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she'll be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. People disagree here about who exactly the enemy is that Jerusalem's referring to. Maybe it's referring to Assyria, you know, the besieged city you might remember, and the commander of the Assyrian armies charging around it, asking them, where is your God? Who's going to rescue you out of this situation? So some people think the enemy is Assyria. Other people think it's the enemy's Babylon, Lady Babylon. And Mike has told, early, told us to earlier on that one day Babylon's going to come and destroy their temple and take them away into exile. Maybe it's Babylon. Maybe it's Assyria. I, I don't think it really matters, actually, who the enemy is. Because whether it's Assyria or Babylon, both of these enemies looked as though they had the victory, didn't they? It looked as though they had struck the killer blow to the city. But you'll know from your Bibles, in the end, neither of them prevailed. History is very clear. Overnight, the Assyrian army, the Syrian siege collapsed. Overnight, the Babylonian kingdom collapsed. In both cases, God reached and snatched his people out of the jaws of, victory, out of, the jaws of defeat. But what isn't clear here in Micah is why God did that. Think about it. Why would God do that? How have Israel, in a matter of chapters, gone from being guilty sinners to here being righteous victors? How has the Lord gone from being their accuser in court in chapter 6 to being the one pleading their case here in chapter 7? How have the enemy gone from gloating to being trampled underfoot? It's not explained here in Micah. But it is explained that very first Easter weekend. See, when God's son was being nailed to the cross, it looked like he'd lost when Jesus gave out his final breath, it looked like Satan, sin, and death, it looked like they'd won. And when Jesus' limp and lifeless body was lowered into the darkness of the tomb, it looked like those enemies, they had their hold over humanity secure. 
You might remember that scene from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Did you read that book when you were a child? Maybe you saw the film uh, about 15 years ago, I think it was released. You might know that scene where Aslan agrees to give his life in the place of Edmund. He's the boy who betrayed him, the turncoats. And willingly, Aslan the lion, he, he walks to this stone table, which the white witch laughs at him. She mocks him for his foolishness. Uh, you can picture him there. He, he's surra- she is, uh, the white witch is surrounded by her minions, and, and they tie up the lion. They spit at him. They, they shave off his glorious mane. He's humiliated. And then at the last, the white witch raises a knife and kills the lion, the great beast. There's a pause. And the witch and her minions, they, they start celebrating wildly. They, they can't believe their luck. They think uh, Aslan's death is their victory, that now, that now Narnia is theirs for the taking. Well, it's, a, it's an allegory, of course, isn't it? A powerful one. And the Apostle Paul wrote something similar. He, he wrote that if Satan had understood God's plan... He would never have crucified the Lord of glory. And so we can imagine these defiant words, verse 8. You can imagine these words on the lips of Jesus as he was dying on the cross, couldn't you? Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Friends, in the light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we can can come and look at verse 9 from a completely different angle. Because although, yes, it was we who had sinned against him, it was he who bore the wrath. And he now pleads our case and and establishes our right to be called children in his his household. He, He brings us out of darkness that we might see his righteousness. What this means for us is this. If you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, you're not a loser. In fact, quite the opposite. You are more than a conqueror. By virtue of Jesus' resurrection, sin and death have no hold over you anymore. Satan's lies and accusations, they have no power over you anymore. No, we're not the losers. But neither are we the heroes. We're much like Israel, like the city of Jerusalem. We're guilty sinners. But our God is so gracious, isn't he? And he will give his own righteousness to us. So friends, don't be too concerned by the size of our enemies or by their ferocity or by their rhetoric. Let's not judge the outcome of the race before it's even finished. I think G.K. Chesterton was right when he said... At numerous times in history, the church has gone to the dogs. But in each and every case, it was the dog that died. You see, in Christ, we know our enemies will be defeated. That's one reason to have hope. The next one you'll see on your sheets is that our boundaries will be extended. In verse 11, Micah gives us another glimpse of the future. Look at verse 11 in your Bibles. The day for the building of your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. 
even from Egypt to the Euphrates, from, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, the earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. If you've ever been to the Lake District on, on holiday, you might know that wherever you go in the Lake District, there are these amazing dry stone walls. Um, they're made of just rocks which farmers over the centuries just picked up and sort of lumped on top of each other. And they're vast, these, these walls. They, they stretch over entire mountain ranges. And uh, as, the, as the topography and the, and, the, and the geology of the mountain ranges changes, Grace is loving this, the sort of resident geography teacher. It's interesting, as, as, the, as the rocks and the mountains change, so you'll notice that the, 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 the rocks that make up the walls also change as you go along. And that's the picture Micah uses here in verse 11. He, he uses to describe Jerusalem's walls. It's, it's strange. He, he doesn't use the Hebrew word to describe city walls, city siege defences. The word for wall he uses is, is for a dry stone wall, the sort of wall which they would, you would find around a sheep pen or a vineyard. And so the picture here is wonderful. It's, it's a picture of God creating in this city a place where his flock, his sheep, are safe from the wolves. It, it's, it's a picture of a vineyard protected so that it can bear fruit instead of thorns. But this won't be some poxy, tiny little enclosure. Oh, no, 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 no. We see in verse 11, the boundaries of Jerusalem are going to be vast, just like those dry stone walls in the Lake District stretch over mountain ranges. So that's the picture here. And notice in verse 12, who's drawn to this city? Who's drawn into the sheepfold, into the vineyard? Well, it's people from all over the world. It's Jews from exile. It's Gentiles from, over, from far off places. It's even enemies of God's people. Even the Assyrians who were once besieging the city. Even the Egyptians who once enslaved God's people are invited in. A bit like those dry stone walls whose composition varied according to the geology of the area. So the composition of God's people is varied. Let me look around. We're very different but we're still one sheepfold. We're still one vineyard. And so just look around you. Here we are 2,700 years later after Micah's prophecy, and we have a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. Here we have people of all nations. We have uh, some Jews. We have Gentiles. Uh, we have people who are once hostile to God. We have people from the Muslim community here who have turned to Christ. We have people here from the LGBT community who have turned to Christ. We have people from secular humanist backgrounds who have turned to Christ. The church couldn't be more inclusive. It is a safe place for anyone who would turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. Now we see that only partially as we look around. But on the day of Jesus' return, we're going to see in all of its glory... That picture from Revelation 20 when Ruth read it of, of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There's going to be a place with no more crying, no more sin, no more pain, because God is in the midst of her. Friends, that is where life is found. That's where we long for our friends and families and neighbours to be. Not outside the city where there's only desolation, but in the city with Christ, with the shepherd. 
So don't be fooled by present appearances, certainly not here in the UK. However small and pathetic the church might presently look, we know that one day the boundaries of God's people will be extended. So let's have some pride in our identity as Christians. Well, here's the third reason. The third reason for hope is that our prayers will be answered. Look at verse 14 with me. Here Micah prays. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days long ago. Now, if you've been here throughout this series of Micah, this will be familiar language, won't it? We've seen it again and again, the promise of a, of a shepherd king who's going to gather his, his sheep into the green pasture. It's almost like a return to Eden, isn't it? The language here. It's nothing new. But I want us to see that there is a, a flip side to this coin, a flip side to this prayer. Imagine, if you like, um, a teenager who is being horrendously bullied at school. Each day he goes in and he gets uh, picked on, his money gets stolen, he even gets beaten up. And this goes on for months and months and months. It's horrendous. He hates school. He's losing weight. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. It's horrible. And you can imagine his parents are at their wit's end. They're spending all their evenings hunting for a school, a safe place where he might learn. And one day they're delighted to discover a new school has been opened. It's, it's a brand new school with a new headmaster. It's wonderful. It's got these fantastic new facilities. It, it's lovely. And they're really excited. And there's space. And so the next week, this lad arrives at his new school. You can picture him. He's wearing his, his new school uniform, and his new sports centre, the new music centre. It's great. But then he looks over in an assembly and he realises he's not the only one who's been transferred to the new school. That the, all his bullies are there with him. And suddenly that wonderful, safe place doesn't seem so safe and wonderful anymore. You see, in order for God to bring us eternal safety and security, it's not enough for him to just bring us to a safe place. He's going to have to deal with all those things which might threaten our safety and security when we get there. So we want to know, don't we, what will God do about those who persecute his church? About those who want nothing more than to see his church die, whose mouths are constantly belittling and, and blaspheming Jesus' name, who use their power to oppress the poor. What, what's going to happen to them? We want to know, don't we? Well, in verse uh, 16, Micah continues to pray. I want you to follow with me. And unfortunately, our translation masks the fact that he's still praying. He's still asking God for things. So forgive me if I make some minor amendments as we go along. Follow, follow with me, verse 16, if you would. Micah prays, May nations see and be ashamed and deprived of all their power. May they lay their hands on their mouths and may their ears become deaf. May they lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. May they come trembling out of the dens May they turn in fear to the Lord our God and be afraid of you. I don't know what you make of these words. Maybe that they think, oh, it doesn't quite sit right with me. But I want you to see that throughout the entire Bible, salvation and judgment have always gone hand in hand. Right at the beginning, Genesis 3, we know there's going to be no return to Eden 
unless the serpent is crushed. In the Exodus story, we know that the Israelites, they're not going to be safe out of slavery to Egypt unless Pharaoh is drowned in the Red Sea. And in Revelation 20, which we had earlier on, there's going to be no new Jerusalem unless Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And that is why Micah very carefully wraps these twin prayers around a promise. Did you see that, verse 15? I deliberately missed over it. It's one of God's promises. Look at that, 15. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Picture, if you would, Jerusalem at this time when they heard this. They're they're being besieged by the Syrians. They're terrified. They have the prospect of exile to Babylon looming, looming in the horizon. And into that darkness, God speaks this message, a message to his broken people. I'm going to do the Exodus thing all over again. I'm going to rescue you, but not with some rubbish, anemic UN pronouncement, no, but with flair and with fury, which of course he did, didn't he? He did that in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read the Gospels, Jesus' miracles, their test that he is bringing in a new Exodus, It's a redemption out of slavery to sin. It's a rescue out of Satan's dominion. Our safety and security was secured through the defeat of those enemies. So friends, in the midst of your present day sieges as a Christian, when we've been made to feel that we are losers when we've been made to feel that we're on the wrong side of history, let us do what the prophet Micah does here. Instead of just praying through our usual lists of wants and needs, why don't we pray around God's promises? Because you can't be on the wrong side of history if you're on the right side of Christ. The men's breakfast yesterday morning, we were opened up this passage, and as is normal when your small group leader opens up a passage, you always begin with a context question, don't they? So I asked the guys, does anyone remember who, who are Israel's enemies at this point in time? I expected them to say, oh, Assyria, or oh, Babylon. I didn't get that answer. Um, one, one old chap called George leaned forward and said, um, I think their enemy is themselves. And he's absolutely right, isn't he? Throughout Micah, we've seen that. We've seen that the problem isn't so much them out there. It's in here. It's me. It's my sinful heart. It's my idolatry for self-security and self-sufficiency. You see, it's no use, is it, if God removes all the enemies out there, if he hasn't dealt with the enemy in here. And so Micah closes his book. He brings it to an end with one last reason for hope. And that is that our sin will be forgiven. Follow with me, verse 18. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham. 
as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. In verse 18, a simple question is, is posed. Who is like God? And you might know that's actually the meaning of the name Micah. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord of the Bible? Who is like him? So here at the very end, we're invited to compare all our would-be gods and all our idolatrous worldviews and all our sinful desires, compare them all to the Lord God of the Bible. Marganita Lasky, you might not have heard of her, but at one time she was one of England's best-known novelists, and she was a very famous secular humanist, very angry, uh, sort of atheist type, you can imagine, sort of the, the Dawkins of the 80s, if you like. But shortly before she died in 1988, she was on one of these TV talk shows. I think it was a bit like the Graham Norton show. There, there's a number of guests and sitting on a sofa, a bit like this. And, and Lasky was there, with, uh, I think, with a, with a Christian panellist. And um, Lasky had already been interviewed, and, and sort of Graham Norton or the equivalent moved on to, to the Christian guest. And, and the Christian guest was started talking about how they'd been forgiven and, and things like that. And, and, and Lasky interrupted him. In a moment of brutal honesty, she said this. You see, that's the thing I envy about you Christians. It's your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Who is a God like you? Friends, I wonder if we've become so overly familiar with the idea of God's forgiveness that we've forgotten just how rare and precious a jewel it is. Entertain me for a moment. Bear with me. Hold in mind whatever religion, philosophy, or worldview which you think best competes with our God. Hold that in mind. Or, or maybe whatever idolatrous impulse or, or sinful desire which, which is most likely to draw you away from God. Whatever that, whatever that is for you, hold that in your head for a moment, okay? It might be for you uh, the desire for wealth, for power, for fertility, for, for, for blessing. I, I, I don't know. Whatever that, that idol is for you, whatever that competing worldview is, hold that in your head. And now with me, walk through these final verses and compare it to our God. Verse 18. Does that thing in your head pardon and forgive? Do they delight to show mercy? Or do they instead drive you to work harder and harder and harder for meaning and life and fulfillment and satisfaction? They mercilessly demand more and more sacrifice until you simply burn out. Verse 19. Does that thing in your head, do they, do they show compassion to you like a father? Do they take your sins, put them on the floor, stamp on them, and then throw it into the sea? To be, forgive, to be forgiven, forgotten, forever? Or instead, do they constantly remind you of your failings or your shortcomings as a Christian or as a human being and hold them against you like a big, ugly debt? Verse 20. Do they deliver on what they promise? Do they make good? Are they faithful to, to their hope of life, identity, Purpose, blessing. 
Or do they just fall short again and again and again? Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? There's a Spanish story of a, a son who ran away from his family. I think he stole a whole load of money off his dad and then sort of pegged it across the other side of the country. His father um, then went out to search for him. He spent months on end searching for his son, Pedro, I think his name was. And finally, in, in an act of desperation, I think the father had landed in Madrid, um, in, in an act of desperation to find him, the, the, the father posted an advert in the local newspaper. It wasn't just in the small ads. He, he put, took, took out a whole quarter-page advert in order to find him. It said this, Dear Pedro, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Apparently that Saturday, 800 Pedros turned up (laughs) looking for forgiveness, looking for love from their fathers. Our world is crying out for a narrative, for a belief system which takes losers and embraces them. So is the church for losers? In all honesty, yes. Yes. But more than that. We are also guilty, broken, ashamed, messed up, sinful. I could go on and on and on. And yet our Father calls us and he says, all is forgiven. I love you. Come home. So yeah, we're, we're, we're losers. But in Christ, we can't lose. (laughs) We can't lose. So please, come join us in this city. Join the vineyard. Join the sheepfold. Come to your shepherd king. Let's pray. Father God, such is your love for us. Such is your love and your compassion for us that you would enter our world and your son be made guilty that we might be declared righteous, that you embrace us even though we're losers and that you crush our enemies and declare us victors. Father, you love us so much. So Lord, whoever we are tonight, whatever our backgrounds, help us to come to you. Help us to throw on you And at the foot of the cross, all our sin, knowing that they'll be trodden underfoot there and thrown into the depths of the sea. Father, who is like you? Who is like you? Amen. Thank you very much, um, Andy. And I'm sure um, if, uh, if you have any questions about um, this evening's talk or would like to pray with Andy, I'm sure that afterwards the service he would be more than happy um, to do that. And we're going to respond um, from, from, uh, from what we've heard with a couple of songs. Um, so shall we stand together and sing?